privilege, as always, to open God's Word together. And I'd invite you to do that. Turn to Genesis chapter 20. We're, consider- we're continuing our uh, study of the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you forgot it or you just don't have one, lift up your hand. The uh, ushers will be coming down with Bibles. You're welcome to take one. If you don't have one, you're welcome to keep it. And uh, then turn in that Bible to Genesis chapter 20. In this section of Genesis that we've been in for, for some weeks now, we've been looking at the life of Abraham. And of course, Genesis contains more than just the story of Abraham. It begins with the story of creation and it ends all the way with the family of Israel in Egypt. But, but a great portion of the book of Genesis is taken up with this life of this one man. And, and he's a significant man again and again in the New Testament He's looked at as a model of faith and, and also as a model of how God keeps his promises to his people. So we can't overemphasize, I think, the life of Abraham. It's incredibly significant for us today. Now we're looking at two chapters in Abraham's life, chapter 20 and chapter 21. It's a, it's a fairly lengthy section for us to look at just in one morning, but, but it actually is a section that's meant to be read in one sitting. It's meant to be taken as a unit. And the reason why we can see this is really simple. If you just look at your Bibles now, you can see that Genesis chapter 20 begins with the story of Abraham and this man Abimelech. And then, actually, if you just turn over to chapter 21, you'll see it ends with Abraham and Abimelech. So there are these bookends in Genesis 20 and Genesis 21. The story of Abraham and Abimelech at the beginning where Abraham first encounters him and then the story of Abraham and Abimelech at the end. And in between a lot of different things happen but, but th- that's the beginning point and the end point. So chapters 20 and 21 are meant to be taken together and they're meant to give one more uh, bit of teaching about the life of this very important figure. Now, before we look at our Bibles closely and, and, and try to understand what it is that God is teaching us through this story, I'd like to pray again as we approach God's Word. So will you pray with me now? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege of coming into your presence in prayer. We thank you for the privilege of holding in our hands your word. We confess to you that if you had not revealed yourself to us in your word, we would really be in the dark. We wouldn't understand you. We wouldn't understand ourselves or the world in which you placed us. We would be in darkness and confusion. But you have revealed yourself in your word and we We thank you for it. And as we approach your word this morning, please give us humility. Give us clarity in our thinking. May may your word, by your spirit, do its work in our hearts. We know your word is living and active and able to pierce to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we ask that you would do that by your spirit through your word this morning. Convict us, teach us, train us in righteousness, thoroughly equip us for every good work. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 
Well, this is yet another chapter in Abraham's life. Abraham's come a long way since Genesis chapter 12 when we're first introduced to him. God calls him, and and it's really not clear in Genesis 12 why God calls him. Abraham seems like an unlikely candidate. In, in, In many ways, he seems like the worst possible candidate for God to call, but nonetheless, God calls him, and God makes Abraham this great promise, and then God unfolds the promise more, and we read in Genesis that Abraham believes God. He's a, he's a believer, and he trusts God and, and, and wanders in a land that's not his own. We learn from the New Testament that all that time when Abraham was wandering, he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. But he doesn't have a, a place to call his own. And as God unfolds His promise to Abraham, as we've seen in the previous weeks, we know that this promise takes specific shape in Abraham's life because God says to Abraham, Abraham, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to to give you a son. And And then actually God gets even more specific. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you and your wife Sarah a son together. It's not just going to be from you through another woman, but it's going to be from you through Sarah. And, and, and this is an astonishing promise because when Abraham receives it, he's 99 years old. And, and, and here he is in Genesis chapter 20, uh, this 99-year-old man. He's still wandering. He's still sojourning. He still has no property of his own. And, and he still hasn't received the promise. Can you imagine that? I, I know you've, you've had this experience. I think it's a universal experience that, that everyone has where you, you wake up at various points in your life where you take a step back at, at various moments, maybe, maybe good moments or maybe, maybe moments of difficulty, and you say to yourself, how, how did I get here? How, how did it end up this way? This is not what I expected. In fact, I bet for, for most of you, if I had asked you a year ago or five years ago, what's life going to be like on this date? You, 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 you wouldn't have imagined this. You, you wouldn't have imagined all the twists and turns. You maybe thought you were going to be in a different place, in a different experience, that your life was going to look a little different than it does right now. Maybe, maybe some of you feel this very acutely because you've just experienced some great reversal in your life, some great difficulty. It's not uncommon. And this is Abraham. He's, he's 99 and he doesn't yet have the promise and he doesn't yet have the son. And as every day goes by, it looks less and less likely that this could ever possibly happen for him. And so how does Abraham respond to this? That's the first question I want to ask as we kind of survey through Genesis 20 and 21. I want to look and say, what does Abraham do? How does Abraham act in these chapters? How does Abraham respond to this strange situation that he finds himself in as an old man? 
Well, I want to look first at the beginning of chapter 20. The first thing that Abraham does in chapter 20, he has this encounter with Abimelech. Remember, that's at the beginning and that's at the end. And at this be- in this beginning encounter with Abimelech, you know what Abraham does? Abraham lies. He lies to protect himself. Look at verse 2. I'll begin actually in verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she's my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. It's just two short verses, but imagine everything that goes into this. Abraham's sojourning around, he's traveling around, he doesn't have a great place to settle. But when he finally does begin to settle down, the first thing he does is he lies about his relationship with his wife. He says that she's not his wife, but she's his sister, and he does that in order to protect himself. Actually, we've seen Abraham do this before. If you've been following the life of Abraham, you know one of the very first things we see Abraham do, all the way back about six chapters earlier than this, Abraham does the same thing. He, he, he's traveling down to Egypt in that case, not Gerar, and, and he's afraid. He's afraid that he might get in trouble because of Sarah, his wife, and, and maybe they'll want to kill him to get her. And, and so he says, you know, she's my sister, and he does it again here. You imagine this? Decades of walking with God. Decades of living in light of God's promises. Decades of having the Lord provide for Abraham again and again and again. Sometimes in astonishing and miraculous ways. And yet here he is, 99, still falling into the same patterns of sin that he fell into all the way at the beginning of his walk with the Lord. Does that sound a little familiar to you? Perhaps that's the situation you find yourself in. You say, I, I, I really thought, I really thought that my, my life and even my life of faith would be, would be different at this point. I, 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 I keep falling into these same sinful patterns. I keep, I keep making similar mistakes over and over I, 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 know, I know that God is at work. I know that I'm trusting God, but, but again and again, the same things. And this is Abraham. It's like this story is lifted from early in his life as a believer. He does it again. And imagine the destructiveness of what Abraham does. He, he's lying, first of all. He's also putting his wife Sarah at tremendous risk because basically, as soon as they find out that Sarah is his sister, what, what Abimelech does is he's going to take her into his household to make him one of his, one of his wives or one of his concubines. And so, so he's putting Sarah at tremendous risk. He's basically leaving her completely vulnerable, plus he's lying, and he's, making Abimelech, he's putting Abimelech at great risk as well because if God promised to work through Abraham and Sarah, then God's not going to let Abimelech get in the way of that. And so Abimelech's at great risk too. Look at the destruction that Abraham is risking with this repeated pattern of sin. Here he is, 99. How did I get to this point? And he's doing the same thing 
all over again. A little later in this chapter, we see another glimpse into Abraham's personality. Because Abraham is confronted about his sin. He's actually confronted by Abimelech. And we'll go back and look at those details in a moment. But for now, I want you to see what Abraham does. When Abraham is confronted by Abimelech, when his sin is found out and exposed, here's what happens. I'll pick up in verse 10. Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done these things, done this thing? And Abraham said, look at at Abraham. This is such a window into who he is at this point in his life of faith. Abraham said, Well, because I thought, surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Now, I want you to notice that at almost every point in that sort of excuse, Abraham shades the truth. Maybe more than slightly. First of all, he, he begins by essentially blaming it on Abimelech and his people. He says, well, you know, I thought there's no fear of God in this place. Well, what do you expect me to do? You, you guys are pagans. You, you guys have no moral standards. Of course I had to do this. So he puts, puts the weight on Abimelech. And then, and then he shifts and, and says, they're going to kill me. And, and, and actually, if you, if you sort of trace it through the right, uh, the right side of my family, she kind of is my half-sister in a way. So again, he's trying to obfuscate. He's trying to make excuses. And then he says, in fact, she, she, she became my wife. End of verse 12. Like, I don't know how this happened. I... I, I, I I, I woke up and she was my half-sister, if you sort of trace it the right way, and then she became my wife suddenly. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not really my wife. I, how could you expect me to say that? And then, and then, when God caused me to wander, verse 13, because this is God making Abraham do all this, of course, then I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. But actually, that's not true either. Because if you look at the beginning of chapter 20, this isn't something that goes all the way back to the beginning of their life as a married couple, where Abraham said, please be kind to me and tell people you're my sister. This is actually something specifically that Abraham said of Sarah back in verse 2. But you see what he does? He lies. He, he, he puts all these people close to him at great risk. And then, and then even when he's confronted about this sin, he doesn't repent. He, he, he tries to make it sound not quite as bad as it actually was or make himself be not quite as culpable as he actually was. I mean, the truth is, if you read the beginning of this chapter, it's very clear there is one person to blame for this situation, and it's Abraham. And yet you read his excuse and you'd think it was partly Abimelech's fault and partly a big misunderstanding and, 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 and then maybe God's fault a little bit and something that Sarah was doing on her own because of an earlier conversation years before. That's not it at all. So Abraham begins by lying. He compounds it by his own excuses. He doesn't, he doesn't embrace repentance as 
believers are commanded to do on a daily basis. He has his own ideas and he makes excuses and blames everybody else. What about in chapter 21? What do we see about Abraham there in chapter 21? Well, actually in chapter 21, Abraham does have a moment that demonstrates to us his belief in God, his his trust in God. Because when Isaac finally is born, when, when Abraham and Sarah actually do have this son, this miraculous child of promise, seems like an impossible promise for God to keep, but when he does keep it, and they have this son Isaac, it does say in verse 4, then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And he, Abraham's a hundred at the time, and, and, and yet he circumcises his son. And that's, that's an important thing to note, because it reminds us that even in the midst of all this unfaithfulness and unbelief and sin that Abraham takes part in, he still is ultimately a believer. He still is trusting in God's promise. He still is obeying the command of God. God had told Abraham that the sign of his promise, the sign of his covenant, was that Abraham was to circumcise all those males in his household. And so here comes Isaac, and Abraham actually does do it. He's he's saying, I'm still trusting in God's promises. It's such a peculiar picture, though, isn't it? In chapters 20 and 21, on the one hand, Abraham's a believer. He circumcises Isaac on the eighth day. He's trusting God's promises. He's He's still a believer. On the other hand, at all these key moments of pressure, he's sinning, he's hurting others, he's making excuses, he's floundering around, falling into the same patterns he used to fall into. But you know, I think there's something comforting in that, because isn't this the picture often of your life, my life, believer, Trusting God's promise, banking on what Christ has done on our behalf. And yet, so often, so often failing to obey God, so often sinning in ways that we should have abandoned long ago, so often failing to heed God's call to repentance when other people confront us, when other people point something out, making excuses. It's the kind of thing that characterizes our lives all too often. And and it, it characterizes Abraham's life too. His life is is a little bit of a roller coaster here of faith. And and it continues because even after this great moment of expressing his confidence in God by circumcising his son Isaac He encounters this difficult command that God gives him. God initially uses Sarah to give this command, and then God reinforces it. And here's what we see in in verse 9, beginning in verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, this is Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. 
Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. It's a difficult thing because Ishmael, for all the negative things that are associated with him, for all the sin that was involved in his conception, Abraham and and Sarah conspiring together to try to work out a solution to a, a problem, for all of that, Ishmael is Abraham's son. And Sarah is saying, he needs to leave because he's mocking the child of promise. And it says in verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. This is, do you understand what you're asking me to do here, Sarah? I, 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 know, I know all the implications, but this is, this is my son we're talking about. You just want me to kick him out of the house? And yet God reinforces it. God said to Abraham, verse 12, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. So here's the profile of Abraham. A man of faith, yes. But a man of great flaws, sins, recurring patterns of dealing with life in ways that are destructive. A man who is trusting in God's promises, but even as God commands him to do things, is distressed deeply about doing them. And I think there's a reason why Abraham in the New Testament is so often cited as a model of faith to us. It's not simply because of his great moments of faith in the Lord. And there are those great moments. I think it's also because Abraham, in many respects, is very much like you and me as believers. And so in that sense, we can identify with him and we, we see with a realistic portrayal what the life of faith so often is. But now I want to look at this story from another perspective. We've profiled Abraham and tried to fill in some of the details here of who he was and what he did and what seems to be driving him and what kind of man he is, even at 99 years old after decades as a believer. But now I want to look at this story from a different angle, and I want to ask the question, what is God doing in the midst of this roller coaster life that Abraham seems to be living? So go back to the beginning of chapter 20, and let's look at this again. We know that Abraham said that his wife was actually his sister. He lied, he exposed her, he placed her in, in great danger. But but look at what happens in verse 3. Abimelech takes Sarah into his house, really putting her at grave risk. But, verse 3, but but God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? 
And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he'll pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. I want you to see something in this incident and in God's dealing with Abimelech. And ultimately, he's dealing with Abraham. You see how even in the midst of Abraham's disobedience and sin, God was at work? God is at work appearing to Abimelech in a dream and warning him. God was already at work in keeping Abimelech from touching Sarah. God is at work warning Abimelech that that there's a way for him to escape from the penalty of uh, of this sin he almost committed. God is at work throughout this paragraph. In fact, if you look at it carefully, if you look at this dream and this sort of dialogue between Abimelech and the Lord, what you realize is everything good that's happening, every consequence that's being kept from Abimelech and from Abraham is as a result of the Lord's work. Isn't it interesting that even while Abraham is trying to protect himself in a sinful way, even while Abraham is, is willing to make excuses and blame almost everyone but himself, even, even going so far as to blame God for the situation he's in of wandering. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of that, God is in his providence at work in the whole thing. It reminds me of a story that we'll find later in the book of Genesis might be a story that's familiar to you. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and betrayed. He ended up in Egypt and he's betrayed several times in Egypt and entrapped and falsely accused and all kinds of things. And at the end of it all, Joseph has a position of great power in Egypt and he has an opportunity to gain revenge on his brothers for their initial sin against him selling him into slavery. And Joseph has this this line that resonates through the whole Bible, and I think in a sense it's a line that we could apply to this situation with Abraham. Joseph encounters his brothers, he reveals who he is, they're shocked, they're, they're scared, and Joseph says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You see what's happening with Abraham? Can't give much credit to Abraham for this situation. No excuse really can be made for what he does here to his wife, to the Lord, to Abimelech. But nonetheless, God is providentially at work in the midst of all of it to bring about his purposes. You know, that God whom Abraham serves is the same God we proclaim today. This is the same God who's providentially at work in your life if you're a believer and he's at work for good. The Bible says all things 
work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. All things. It's a remarkable contrast between Abraham's sin and God's good providence in the midst of it. What else do we see about the Lord? Well, this is hinted at at the end of verse 7, and then it's made explicit in verse 17. At the end of verse 7, God says to Abimelech, as he's telling him what to do next, he says, therefore restore the man's wife, he's a prophet, he'll pray for you, and you will live. And then what we see is, after Abraham makes all his excuses, he's confronted by Abimelech, and he makes these, this long series of excuses, Abimelech gives him all these gifts, all these sheep and oxen and female and male servants, and he gives Sarah back, of course, and, 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 and tells Abraham, settle wherever you want, you know, just, just, just please pray to God on my behalf. And in verse 17, that's what Abraham does. It says, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You know another thing we learn about God in these chapters? We learn about God's providence, his ordering of all these events, even in the midst of unfaithfulness. But we also learn, we're reminded, that God is the God who hears and answers prayer. And what's remarkable about this is the person whose prayer he answers is Abraham, who is a believer, but this is not his finest hour. I wonder how it is that you view prayer. I wonder if you pray. I wonder what it is that keeps you from praying. It's difficult. Perhaps what keeps you from praying is you say, well, you know, I, I make so many mistakes. I seem to do the same things over and over again. It's really no use for someone like me to pray to God. What, what, what possible effectiveness could that have? But here's Abraham. After just making excuses, God says, no, 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 Abraham, pray to me. And Abimelech says, please pray for me. And Abraham prays, and God answers. It's an amazing thing. You know, throughout the scriptures, the people of God are characterized as people who pray. They pray when, when things are very difficult. Remember Moses, when he comes down off the mountain, he is angry at the people. He is frustrated with God. It is a low point in his life. He prays. He doesn't go off and try to distract himself, forget about it, numb the pain. He prays. Again and again, this is what God's people do. Remember, remember Jesus? What does Jesus do so often in the Gospels? It says he, he got up early in the morning and snuck away and prayed. And then at his hour of greatest need, Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. He prays. God is a God who commands us to pray and who hears the prayers of his people. 
we're told, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I don't know how much more comprehensive that command could be. In everything, let your requests be made known to God. We read in James, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Paul says, cast, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. Do you pray? God's a God who answers prayer. Even the prayer of servants of his who are unfaithful, as we all so often are. What else do we see about God? Well, at the beginning of 21, we have this great highlight, really remarkable highlight, although very, you know, just a verse is given to it, but, but it's such a critical verse. Look at 21.1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Now, it, it, it's astonishing. It, it's miraculous. It's, 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 it's hard to imagine that at this stage of their lives they have a child. But do you see what the writer of Genesis tells us? God does this, not because Abraham has been particularly good, in fact, just before this, we had a pretty low moment for Abraham. Not because Sarah's been particularly confident, because we know she really wasn't that confident in God's promises. But it says, the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. The Lord took note of Sarah as he said. Do you know the promises of God? If he said it, if he promised it to you, he will do it. It's that simple. God does this because he said he would do it. He does it because he promised it. We can rely on the promises of God. It may not always look as if those promises are going to be fulfilled. It may seem improbable that they, but you can bank on the promises of God. God is a God of promise, a God of providence. God is a God who answers prayer, and God is a God who keeps his promises even to the weakest of his children. Next we see in chapter 21 that God is a God who not only fulfills his promises, but God is a God who is vigilant about protecting the, the reality uh, of the fact that he, he operates on the basis of his own grace and not other people's works. That's really the whole dynamic between Ishmael and Isaac. The, the issue is, as, as difficult as it is to imagine Abraham kicking out his son Ishmael, the, the, the issue at stake is this. Ishmael was brought about by Abraham's own works, by Abraham's own attempts to try to embrace the promise and get it on his own terms. And God says, no. As painful as it may be, he has to show Abraham and, and show Sarah and show all of us that the promise comes by his grace, by his miraculous fulfillment of promise, and not by works. In fact, Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 4. He tells us that 
In fact, we can look at Ishmael and Isaac as kind of a child of works and a child of promise. And this incident of casting out Ishmael was necessary to show us that God doesn't operate on the basis of our works. That's not how you find acceptance with Him. If you are here and you are trying to find acceptance with God on the basis of what you do, what you bring to the table, the way you can manipulate circumstances in your life, I'm telling you that's not the God of the Bible. But the good news is, the God of the Bible is a God who offers forgiveness and a relationship with Him purely on the basis of His grace and on the basis of the work of His Son, whom He has provided for us. You see, that's the, that's the great news of the Scriptures. And Abraham needed to have that reinforced, and we needed to have that reinforced. God is a God of providence. God is a God who answers prayer. God is a God who always fulfills His promise. And God is a God who operates on the basis of grace and not works. One last thing. I told you there are bookends in this passage. The bookend of Abimelech at the beginning, the bookend of Abimelech at the end. Look at the difference between the two. You know what happened at the beginning. Abraham lies to Abimelech. He tries to manipulate him. He, he gets himself in all kinds of trouble. Look at the end here. Beginning in verse 22, this final encounter with Abimelech. Now, it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant, Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Now there's a lot that's going on in this final encounter but I want to point out something that I think the writer absolutely is trying to drive home to us. And that's this. The Abraham you see at the beginning of this story seems very different than the Abraham you encounter at the end. The Abraham at the beginning was concerned about himself, wasn't concerned about Abimelech, was leaving God out of the equation, ups and downs, excuses. The Abraham at the end, still a flawed sinner. But the Abraham at the end is a man who is 
showing kindness to Abimelech, is making a covenant with Abimelech. And more importantly than that, is calling on the name of the Lord, verse 33, the everlasting God. Abraham is trusting in God's providence. Therefore, he can freely bless others because he knows that God is in control. Abraham is praying to God, knowing that God answers prayer. Abraham is making a covenant with Abimelech, which surely in our minds has to remind us that, God, that Abraham learned about this covenant from God who made a covenant with him and kept it. Abraham is walking, it appears, by faith and trusting in God for all that he has. And, and this, is, this is an encouraging word because you and I can see ourselves very easily in this story of Abraham with all his flaws, with all his ups and downs, with all his lack of repentance, with all his sin, with all his lies. We can see ourselves in that. He's a believer. But, but at the end, he's a different person than he was. And it's a reminder to us that this God of providence, this God of answering prayer, this God of fulfilling promises, this God of grace and not works, is also the God who is at work in our lives to transform us. Our, our lives are a kind of school where we day by day learn what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Where we learn and are tested and are stretched and fail and, and by God's grace sometimes succeed and God is overseeing the whole course of study throughout. We're told that it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So as you look at Abraham, we, we ought not to make him some heroic figure with no doubts at all. Clearly, clearly that's not what Genesis portrays. Struggling like you and like me. And yet, and yet God is at work in his life to cause him to grow, to cause him to change, to cause him to worship God and love his neighbor as God commanded him to do. And I don't know where you feel like you are right now. I don't know what strange and unusual things are in your life that you never expected. I don't know if you have that sense of how did, how did I get here? But I can tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that the same God who is at work transforming this 99 and 100-year-old stubborn, sinful man is also at work in you and in me today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again from your, for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. 
We pray that we would be ones who meditate on your word day and night and so are blessed by you. We ask that your spirit would continue to confirm your word in our hearts and would continue to work in us to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day when we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. But until that day, as we sojourn in this life, may we do so with confidence in you, knowing that you are at work, you are teaching, you are transforming. And we ask these things in Christ's name.